You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking to Matt Godbolt, author of the wonderful godbolt.org Compiler Explorer tool. We start with talking about how the Compiler Explorer disassembles and maps compiled programs in various languages, and then start disassembling language designs themselves, talking about reference counting optimizations, destructors and unwinding, and even defending the infamous design decision of not a number being not equal to not a number. And now, disassembling languages. Okay, Matt, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious to ask you this, although uh, there's a little bit of a spoiler because you already told me that apparently the answer is, is kind of boring. Uh, uh, <laughs> no spoilers. Nevertheless, I'm very curious. So in Compiler Explorer, mm-hmm. uh, which you made, and by the way, which is amazing and I love, and so oh, thank, thank you, you so much for making it. <laughs> there's this really cool thing, and to me it seems uh, borderline magical, which is I've got my code on the left, and it's mm-hmm. in my high-level programming language, so my Rust or my Zig or, or what it may be in the future Rock, which would be cool. Yeah. And then it shows me on the right the assembly code that's generated from it. And then uh, in between, and this is the magical part, I've got not just a mapping between which functions correspond to which assembly instructions, but also, well, when possible, it's Mm -hmm. got even the individual lines of code, like the individual statements or expressions and which assembly instructions they map to. Now, I understand that, I mean, sometimes it's not available because of like optimizations and like there's no mapping. So when it's not there, I understand why it's not there. But I'm I'm very impressed with how often it is there and can say like, you know, this plus operator on the left maps to this add instruction, stuff like that. Um, so I'm guessing that the uh, the top level function names sort of correspond to the symbols in the binary. So mm-hmm. I get that part. And I kind of assumed that there's some debug info, vaguely hand waving. Right, right, right. But you're <laughs> sort of like, how is the magic done on our side? Right. It's uh, right. How do you do the bodies of the functions? That's, and, that's yeah, what I'm wondering. As I warned you before we started recording, this is very disappointing because, <laughs> like pretty much everything in Compiler Explorer, it's all down to the compilers themselves and their output formats and everything that they do. We're just a glorified front end to the to, to them all. And, you know, we like to think we add a little bit of, of our own magic to it, but mostly we're standing on the, the, the shoulders of giants who've already, like, solved all these problems for us. So in the same way that when you're debugging a function, your debugger, if you're doing down, going down to the dis- disassembly level, your debugger kind of knows where you are in the source code. Right. Um, that comes from the debug information exactly as you were saying, and we pass that out too. And so esp- essentially, uh, in the output file, in the uh, the binary uh, or the, the text output of the compiled program, there are little markers that say, hey, this from here on corresponds to this line of this source file. Right. And we just parse it as straightforwardly as that. And now we go, well, all these lines now correspond to, you know, and subsequent lines obviously still correspond to the same source line um, until, you t- until you're until you told otherwise. And it's like, oh, now we're at line 12 of the input file. Oh, now we're at line 22. And you're like, wait a second, line 12 and line 22 are a long way apart. And you're like, yeah, the optimizer moved two things right next to each other. <laughs> Unfortunately, we get so many... Um, bugs filed against us saying like how bad the uh, uh the mapping is sometimes and all i can do is say i wish it was our fault and i wish we could fix it but it's <laughs> mostly the compiler not really knowing how to attribute this particular assembly instruction to whichever line because so often the blurring when you turn on the optimizer exactly as you were saying the blurring between is this instruction as a result of this line or that other line or is it because we melded 12 lines together and realized there was some commonality between them and then or is it like we actually replaced the entirety of your function body with a single instruction right and then which line does that instruction correspond to it's like all of these lines right how, how do you so um it is probably the most it's the, the feature I'm most proud of just in the way we surface it and make it so relatively natural to to to, yeah. uh, to folks. But it is completely driven by the compiler itself. That makes sense. Yeah. I, so debug formats, other than knowing that they have a funny name like dwarf, which I assume is a pun on elf, like the, I the, so the binary yeah. format. <laughs> um, I don't actually know like what information is in there. So that's interesting. So, I mean, this is something I know we're going to need to get into for rock, but we haven't yet. The dwarf file format is is absolutely bonkers. I don't know much about it either. I know enough 
to be dangerous, which is like, I think all of all programmers, right, suffer from this. It's like, yeah, hey, yeah, I've done that before. I know everything about it. Like, no, I've grazed the surface of it. So the, the very level that I'm at is really only looking at uh, mostly the directives to the assemblers. Because, you know, we, we actually, uh, for most of the languages, we get the input to the assembler itself. So we see the assembly code that the compiler can sometimes generate rather than disassembling one that's already been compiled. We have a mode where we do that. And sometimes you'll notice that our debug tracking gets a little worse as we have to parse it in a different way. And in the output from the compiler to the assembler, there's very clearly dot line blah that just says, you know, this is this corresponds to that line. When we have to parse the dwarf out, we're a little bit more restricted. But yeah, under the hood, dwarf can do so many things. There's actually a, a small virtual machine that allows the compiler to explain to the debugger how to decode certain aspects of the compiled file. So if you need to like say, well, this function uh, or this variable lives in this register under these circumstances, or it lives in this memory address, which is relative to this other memory address by this complicated expression, it can actually specify that in the dwarf output somehow. And now I'm definitely waving my hands, but I've seen various like attacks um, of like, you know, well, what about buffer overflows in this virtual machine and whatever. Um, and in particular in something like C++ where you have these complicated unwind areas of the code, which says like, okay, if, if an exception is thrown at this assembly instruction, there's somewhere, there's a, a list of the things that you need to do to run all of the destructors from this point. And the debugger needs to know this too under some, it's so clever. It's so clever. I've, I've no idea how uh, people come up with these things to be honest it's amazing yeah i remember um reading a little bit about how that unwinding stuff works and it seems like the original motivation was um i guess there used to be a, a dedicated register for just for unwinding the stack that was like here's here's right before we called this function here's where we were previously and then using that you can always sort of work your way backwards but people were like well I don't want to waste an entire CPU register forever. It seems for that. Quite, quite restrictive, yeah, to have this yeah. pointer around, yeah. And so uh, I was reading a blog post about this uh, I don't know, months ago now. I think it was called like Unwinding the Hard Way or something like that. And and it talked about how, uh, and so the modern way of doing this is, like you said, it's it's extremely clever. Like they, they store the information in like a side table and you can get to the side table from whatever function you're in the middle of. And I believe that the C++ unwinding stuff does a similar trick where it's like you've got a side table somewhere and it's got the like, okay, when you're unwinding this function, here's the extra stuff you need to do. And there's something called a personality that a function <laughs> has. Right. With, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't remember what that does. I, I looked into it at some point and I don't think I ever fully understood it. Um, we looked into all this for Rock because we were kind of wondering like, I mean, we have certain sort of exceptional cases like what happens if you have integer overflow. And we ended up going with something much simpler than that. Uh, and, you know, the, the design is like, unlike C++, you don't have like try catch. You don't have like, uh, you know, you can do these arbitrary, this throws and then this recovers from it and you can specify all that. It's it's much simpler than that, which has pros and cons, but certainly it means that. Just like panic in that situation, the equivalent of like a panicking uh, go or rust or something like that. Is that what you do? Well, unfortunately, I mean, th those also need to unwind. Um, so oh, what see. we do is, uh, I don't know how much you know about Rock, but we have this sort of- Very little. <laughs> As okay. we were discussing beforehand, I was just, while we were waiting, I was trying to install the REPL to have a little play with it, so I felt a little bit more <laughs> with it. Okay, so so um, we have this concept of uh, platforms and applications. And basically what that means is if you're going to build a Rock program, uh, that's an application. And every time you build a, a rock application, you have to decide, here's the platform I'm going to build on. And a platform is like a first class concept in rock. And it kind of feels like using a framework in the sense of or like right. maybe a game engine, for example, mm -hmm. um, where you're like, OK, well, here's a bunch of primitives for me for a particular use case, like a web server or a command line interface or a game engine or something like that. However, platforms are responsible for more than just the sort of like framework level API of things um, behind the scenes. So they're also responsible for memory management and they're also responsible for handling what happens when there's like a, a, a crash. Right, a full, yeah, right. Um, so what happens, for example, uh, when Rock says, like, you know, it's automatically memory managed language, we do automatic reference counting behind the scenes. But uh, when we actually do like, you know, an allocation, we don't actually uh, at, at a language level have a concept of like malloc, rather, your platform provides that. So literally what happens is if I'm implementing a platform, which I personally have implemented a couple of them. I'm, I'm sure um, I'm more yeah. than one. <laughs> um, so it, it'll like literally you define a symbol called rock underscore alloc and it has right. kind of the same signature so, as aligned alloc. 
Uh, I mean, obviously, this is something you do You, if you're doing like embedded development and things like that. Sometimes uh, in C or C++ or whatever, you can say to the compiler, don't link against your default implementation of anything. I'm going to provide the whole lot myself. You're just saying this is sort of packaged up as something that you do kind of more, it's more obvious to switch out and say like, hey, I want to use this platform which provides this memory allocator in this way and it suits this purpose. That's cool. Yeah, so uh, a cool. Uh, oh well, it's it's a work in progress. Um, we'll we'll see how cool it is in practice. Cool code is <laughs> an example of this is. I mean, so everything I just described already works. But uh, a cool thing that we're trying that's like an implication of being able to do this is. Um, Fulkert DeVries has been working on this uh, platform that's a web server where it does arena allocation per request. So there's actually awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there, there's no, uh, you know, no, no deallocation whatsoever. Well, the deallocation is just you throw the whole thing away completely and go like, we've been bumping a pointer every <laughs> exactly. time we need a new thing. And then the, the request is short-lived enough. You presume that you're never going to like run out of like exactly. the that you've got. And then you get to the end, you're like, how, how will I free all my objects? You're like, I don't know. We just pull the pointer back to zero and then off we go again. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. fantastic. That's much yeah. beloved of game developers. You know, that's how like particle systems and things all tend to do their allocations and things or, yep. you know, when something explodes and stuff so makes a lot of sense um and you know it is a thing that you one can do in other languages but like that's a really neat way of packaging it and saying like this is just how we're going to do it in this you mentioned personalities actually this sounds like a little bit like what i believe like the g plus plus personalities are a little bit about it's like hey this is how the 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 abi of the operating system is going to deal with this particular type of exception type and it's like a linker symbol so that we can make sure that the the unwinder knows how to unwind for this particular thing so it's a little bit smells i again i don't know much about that stuff yeah yeah either but how cool yeah so uh so kind of the idea is to um give you a feel as an application author of just like i don't know it's garbage collected somebody's taking care of that but yeah. then behind the scenes the somebody who took care of that is not just the language runtime it's a mix of the language runtime and the platform author so it's transparent to the application author but uh but we can kind of do you know things that are better perfor right. performance or predictability or what have you it's more um, like an explicit uh as you say like middleware layer that's sort of just above the language itself where the language says i don't know how you're going to provide allocation or whatever yeah that's that's an interesting design i, I think it's it's funny so um the most recent c plus plus um standards have kind of started to have a tiny bit of a scent of that so things like coroutines have been added to the language and the coroutines have like very 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 low level support for like switching between essentially green thread type things but then they kind of it's left as an exercise to the reader to handle all the rest of the stuff that actually lets you um, manage uh, what it means to switch between threads and what state is and who's going to run the kind of the, the overall um, you know epoll loop or whatever the equivalent is that's doing all the scheduling and it's not battery included in that way which sort of leaves the door open to lots of frameworks that have popped up that say hey this is how we think you should do coroutine so maybe that's maybe this the time for this kind of idea has come yeah maybe i mean i, I think the real question is and, and the thing that was sort of motivating this in the first place is like to what extent do you want to do that differently on a per use case basis because like the the arena allocation per request makes great sense for a web server doesn't really make much sense at all for lots of other use cases right <laughs> so, Right. Actually, another interesting strategy that that, uh, <laughs> that that can happen is if you're making a command line application that you know is really going to be kind of a sort of a batch script, like it's just going to run from start to end. It's, it's never going to really kind of enter in an input loop or anything like that for the user. Um, you could just leak all the memory and just say, <laughs> you know, just just allocate however but you know what's then, really really good at recovering memory? The operating system. Exactly. When right. dies. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I heard a joke once, which you know, probably was was true maybe decades ago and it doesn't really make sense anymore. But uh, it was like a professor said, how do you know the difference between a C program and a C++ program? And the answer was the C++ program is the one that when it's finished executing, pauses for several seconds to run all the destructors. Not, I mean, there's definitely a, a, a <laughs> that sounds pretty true, unfortunately, in some ways. I know, for example, when I, I, so I used to work at Google for a while and their sort of, their philosophy back then, which is, you know, 15 years ago now, was, yeah, we don't, we never try and work out how to shut down our services because, you know, in general, the computer could explode anyway in the data center, given their kind of general feeling about like running computers at the absolute extent of what they can survive. <laughs> right. So, you know, you have to build in the fact that the, the your, any of the processes you're running could just die because the machine they were hosting on had the plug pulled out the back of it um so why bother shutting down 
just you know just kill the process that's what's going to happen to it anyway when the machine inevitably fails and that meant that there was a whole bunch of things that um that weren't ever dealt with you know if you if you generate a ton of threads during you know startup um trying to shut those down in a way that doesn't cause them to read each other's memory after they've already gone or they're in the middle of doing something you know you didn't have to worry about that which is all great the argument i have against that kind of thing is that unless you can cleanly shut stuff down you don't know if you're leaking because my the way that my tool works is i will run it under like valgrind or whatever and then i'll quit the application and then it'll be like hey everything thinks it's shut down <laughs> but there's this big chunk of memory over here that you, nobody's looking at anymore you're like oh that's that's cool but there are other techniques for doing that these days but yeah it was it was always uh yeah but you're right you know there's no need to, to run all the destructors for things i mean i guess you know if there are files that need to be flushed and stuff like that that's i think that's one of those things is the reason those there's destructors take a while is that often they're doing something and when they're doing something it's probably kind of an important thing to do now if it's just managing memory then of course it doesn't really matter at that point if the process is going away but if it's closing a network connection in a sort of graceful way if it's flushing um uh, writes back to disk or something like that then probably you do want to run it but then of course there are other approaches and many other languages have a perfectly good way of dealing with this without having to have destructors but you know it is that's kind of the defining characteristic of c++ across all other languages is this deterministic cleanup point that you can put your code to say, hey, this is when the object goes out of scope. This is when the object is free. Do this thing for me, please. Yeah, that's a really good point is that, you know, not all destructors are uh, safe to skip when you're uh, when you're shutting everything down. I mean, if you're showing everything down at that point anyway, maybe, you know, you should have already had a more graceful way because once destructors are running, you're kind of in this, um, you know, world where you couldn't pop up a dialogue box to the user going, oh, did you want to save this thing? It's like, well, it's too late, right? Right, The program's already dying. (laughs) That's a good point. So, you know, I can argue each way on that one. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, bringing it back to... um like, uh, you know, crashing exceptions and how to recover from that. So the design we ended up going with in Rock is that uh, basically when, when a crash happens, like the integer overflow or something like that. Which I'm delighted it is actually a crash in your world. You know, in my world, an integer overflow is good luck with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Either the compiler says you can't do it and it's already assumed this isn't going to happen or you're just going to roll over, whatever. Yeah, but yeah, so... Well, so it is by default. So if, like, that's what plus does is it'll do overflow checking. So there's, you know, obviously some overhead associated with that. But we do actually have a function you can call called uh, num.addwrap if you explicitly want wrapping addition. Um, and then that'll oh, just compile down to one instruction. So the use cases for that are one, if you're like, I'm really sure it's never going to come up. Um, and I, well, and I don't want even want to behavior, that. right? You know, you actually yeah. do want to have the, the, the counter that goes round back to zero again. And, and well, like hash, hashing functions depend oh, yeah, on exactly. it and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but also you can just use that as a performance optimization. If you're very confident, it'll never come up. I promise. It's, so this is actually something, obviously, I, I, you know, playing around with Rock earlier, I see that you're using Rust as the sort of development environment for it right now. And yeah. uh, obviously Rust has a lot of opinions about type safety and sure. which things are and are not. And then there's always this unsafe block. And I'm almost like, this seems... So that's the equivalent of putting the unsafe block to some extent around <laughs> to be like, hey, something a bit weird might happen here. And I was, I've always riled against the idea of having an unsafe block. And then it occurred to me that essentially as a C++ programmer, the very first line of my program is unsafe, open a squiggly brace. You know, like, everything <laughs> is unsafe. So I'm like, wouldn't it be nice if like a large portion of my program was safe <laughs> by default? <Yeah. laughs> well, okay, let's let's come back to unsafe in yeah, a second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Sorry, I got derailed. So... There's a couple of different ways. So the platform just says like, you know, here's what to do. Here's the function that I'm going to run whenever one of these crashes happens. Mm-hmm. But it's entirely up to the platform, like what they want to do in that scenario. So one thing they can do is they can like unwind the stack. It requires that you have the basic unwinding capability, but it doesn't require all the like personalities and, and all that all stuff. That magic. Yeah, yeah. But then there's an interesting question of does the platform want to try and keep going or do they want to just completely exit? Oh, interesting. Because for example, you could say, um, so the platform actually, like, we want to get like really behind the scenes. Really, <laughs> it's, it's, cool. it's essentially the case that every rock program compiles down to kind of like a C library. And then the platform actually has main and can call that. So the platform's in charge of startup and, and shutdown and everything else. So you can just say, well, I was calling this rock function. I'm just going to unwind the stack back to, you know, like the, it crashed. Um, like as an example, let's say I was making a desktop GUI application mm-hmm. and I wanted to say like, well, this thing crashed, but I'm going to. I'm going to keep going or I'm going to like restart it or something like that. You could totally do that. Um, but now there's an interesting question of, okay, but how do you, you know, since we don't have destructors, how do you deal with all the memory that that rock application allocated? 
Right. And if right. you're doing arena allocation, there's a very easy answer. Just reset it. But it's less obvious, or at least it was less obvious the first time I was thinking about this to me. <laughs> um, like, what do you do if you're doing a traditional sort of Malak style where, you know, as you were going, you were just allocating arbitrary memory wherever. Now that memory is all over the place. How do you reclaim it all? Set jump, long jump is kind of the, the, right, <laughs> the right, easy right. way of like, you know, saying, okay, we're in this easy. function. We want to unwind the stack. Let's yeah, go yeah, back. Yeah. Um, but basically, uh, the, the, the trick that I thought of is, well, I can make two separate sort of malloc instances. And that's not trivial because of the way that these allocators are impl- implemented usually, but you certainly can. Okay, so we have like a malloc that's sort of like for my whole, like the, 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 the platform. And there's a separate malloc that's just for the rock stuff. And it's like a separate global, a separate, you know, bookkeeping, all of that yeah, stuff. Totally and then when you unwind, you're like, okay, well, you just, th- just that one, you blow away everything and reset and, you know, give back to the operating system, all the pages you mapped right. and so forth. But my, like, like my framework heap is, is still intact and I'm going to manage that in a way. Yeah. So that actually brings me back to sort of thinking about destructors again. So you mentioned a GUI application and now it's been a little while since I've made a GUI application as all GUIs now just live inside web browsers as I'm sure most people <laughs> do use. But um, one of the things that, one of the hallmarks of at least like say Windows uh, development, which is like my last experience of doing this, is that there are a ton of operating system resources as well that you are kind of allocating so you know you're getting a window handle from you know windows or from the x server or whatever and then you're getting like brushes and then you're like painting things with it and again this is showing my age and how long it is since i've done this kind of stuff and obviously those um in my sort of c plus plus mindset that i'm in is like well okay again if you run the destructors then you're in a good a good spot and it's because it's, it's like memory is the last of my worries in these situations nowadays. You know, like memory, as you say, is easy to kind of like recover easy. Um, uh, you know, you see, once you come up with your clever solution to this, but then the fact that you're now going to have an application that's got two main windows open if you're going to restart it. And what the other one is dead and has the not responding thing because nobody's listening to the messages to it anymore. No one has any idea. Um, so I don't know how does that fit into this? Um, yeah, well, thought of a clever trick for it. Good. So the example that I think of is file handles, because those I think are, are oh, a good proxy example. for the other Perfect. one. Yeah. yeah. So because the platform is in charge of memory allocation, and you do allocation and deallocation, and because we also do reference counting, so anytime you have an allocation, it's going to be automatically reference counted, and then Rock will call the dealloc function when the reference count gets back down to zero. What I can do is I can say, okay, another detail here is that the, uh, the platform provides all the IO primitives. So Aha, okay. uh, the standard library in Rock is just all data structures. And so there's actually the this the Rock standard library literally can't even do syscalls. It doesn't even know what they are. Um, it's it's just all, you know, data structures that are built on top of the like, I'm going to call, you know, the platform's allocation function. Um, so what that means is that the platform can say, okay, let's say you call a, you know, platform provided function to open a file and get back a file. Now handle. the platform can keep handles, uh, keep track of this. For exactly. You. And it can keep track of them alongside sort of allocations and make them be reference counted and then say, okay, here's a, you know, reference counted thing. And you can kind of, again, using the like separate heaps trick, you can have a like, yeah, this is just really like I'm resetting the process. I'm just going to close all of its handles and reopen them, or, or we'll just close them and throw them away, or whatever. Or you know, in the case of the window, you would provide that in the platform, and the platform would know that you'd allocated the window, and it would be like, well, we're, we're restarting. Here's my list of windows that I need to destroy just to, or to also clean up. Just in the same way that I'm throwing away the memory, I can throw away the, the windows too. Uh, that is true, and also it can do even better than that, which is that by using the reference counting, um, it can destroy them. Like so, the file handle example again, it can sort of automatically close it as soon as nothing is referencing it again. Basically, by piggybacking on the memory management and saying like, well, okay, when we get our deallocation call, we get the address. So if we put these in a separate heap, I can just see is that address in the heap of things that also have file handles associated with them and if so then i can look up well what's the file handle associated with this address and then close that too got it so this is actually interesting because one of the first things that i the most significant programs i wrote as 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 i'm going to say as a kid but i was 19 so you know i'm old enough now that 19 seems very very young <laughs> oh yeah me too <laughs> but um so i wrote an uh, uh internet relay chat client for my then uh desktop computer that there wasn't another one around and because i didn't have anything else i wrote the whole thing in assembly because why wouldn't you write it in assembly that's the only thing this is an arm-based computer so it's, a, it's much much more straightforward to write assembly than it is in x86 or whatever so but it was a full you know it ran in an operating system windowed operating system so it had to do all of these things and of course that's just one thing but then 
back in the day, internet re- uh, IRC clients usually had some kind of little scripting language built into them, right? Because you know people would want to like do stuff like when people join channels, you want to say hi to them or whatever that kind of nonsense. So I thought I'd do the same, and so I, I implemented a very simple version of of, of basic as my scripting language in assembly. So and then of course, once you've bootstrapped to this point, you start writing more and more of it in the scripting language instead of in the assembly code, because it's frankly, it's a lot easier. Um, um, a friend of mine, or who is now a friend of mine, uh, uh, I, I released this on the internet and someone noticed, it was only an implementation detail. I'd had most of this stuff buried away. There were just a, some simple triggers you could do. But uh-huh. somebody sent me a patch saying like, here's a whole bunch of uh, basic that I've written that like implements a web browser or, you know, like a, a text-based <laughs> web browser. I'm like, what the heck is going on here? So, and an email reader and stuff and whatever. There, there's a law, isn't there? And I think all programs grow until they can read email. Um, I forget the name <laughs> of the law. But anyway, it was fun. But the, the reason I bring this up is that so I, I, my, my, uh, my background was physics. I didn't do a computer science or a computer, uh, programming degree or anything like that. So I didn't really know most of the, the fundamental concepts, but essentially I had invented reference counting myself to try to deal with these things. And I had effectively destructors, even though I didn't know that there was such a thing. And it was pr- purely for file handles back then. So again, I had a similar trick. I had this list of things. And then eventually I had this problem where, um, if there were cycles in my data structures and I, ended up having them fairly often, then I would end with these little islands of things that were potentially even opening, that had files uh, open. And so I invented, invented, I'm going to put air quotes around this because (laughs) I didn't invent it, but I didn't know any different, what it amounts to mark mark sweep garbage collection to in order to deal with these cycle detection yeah and you know that was cool and all but then i hit this problem so the reason i bring this up is like um the operating system that we were running on which was called riscos didn't let you open files twice it was essentially every file handle was uniquely opening that file for you and then you couldn't share it with anybody else not like posixy type stuff and so in the file opening routine if i got the error that says somebody else has opened this file already I had to call the garbage collector because the problem is it might be me from an early incarnation <laughs> where I had like opened it and then forgotten about it. Um, and in order to, re- and if it was reference counted, it would have closed it, of course, and that would be fine. But if it was in a data structure that was islanded off, and it was just like a weird situation to think like my fi- the, the third line of my file system is call the garbage collector because that might be why I can't open this file. And I wonder, sorry, so the long-winded story about this, it was like, I wonder what kind of problems you might have in your world with just reference counted. Do you have also cycle detection and how do you handle with it and handle it in rock? Yeah, so this also gets into another language implementation detail. So Rock is <laughs> Which a is great. I love it. <laughs> so Rock is a purely functional language, and uh, semantically everything is immutable. Um, ah. So the short answer is that uh, we we deal with reference counting cycles at language design time, which is that you can't create them. That's a fantastic way of solving the problem. <laughs> So basically, yeah, so so we can't have cyclic data and uh, and so we don't have to detect cycles. One thing that's unusual about Rock is that so a lot of functional languages, uh, obviously, if you make everything immutable, sort of the naive implementation of that is, well, anytime you want to sort of, quote unquote, change something, you make a clone of it and then change the clone. If you have a really big data structure, that would be really bad for performance. Right, right, um, right. So the common thing that's done in functional languages is that you have persistent data structures that do a lot of node sharing, so you're never actually cloning the whole thing. Somebody somewhere is is mutating something somewhere, but it, you you don't see it as the language user. The fact that you're you know you're adding something to a map that might be a megabyte worth of of data, and you get back a new map. It's like, well, it's not really exactly new. It's sort of ninety nine point nine percent the old map with one thing chained on the top of it, or something like that. Yeah. So that's. That's a, a great way of putting it. Um, is that like some somebody somewhere is mutating something, but they're like you know typically they're cloning something first and then mutating some other thing. So what we do is uh, unusual among languages that are sort of built for like production use. Uh, it's it's as far as I know only otherwise used in uh, research languages like Coca specifically uh, comes to mind as the, the premier research language that does this. But so what we do is we I'll, I'll give you the like sort of obvious way to uh, explain this, but. Let's imagine that you have this gigantic hash map and you're like, I want to insert something into this. So the API for that is give me your current hash map, give me the thing you want to insert, and then I'll give you back a new hash map. But what's actually happening is that it's going to look at your hash map and say, is the reference count one? Because if the reference counts one, then no one else has this. <laughs> if we mutate it in place and just return the thing you gave me. Yeah, yeah. Um, if it's more than one, then okay, now we have to actually clone it. 
But sort of the bet is that the typical way that people are going to use these things is that they are only going to ever be mutated when the reference count is one. And the reason so that we like have this bet- Map is, equals map dot change, map equals map dot change, whatever. Exactly. Over, over again, as you're adding stuff into it, it's like, yep, it's just, it, nobody's, nobody needs the old version of the map right now. Right. And you don't even need to do the like map equals map dot change because we have a nice pipeline operator that's oh, convenient for when you're <laughs> changing. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's lovely to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to think of this as a hypothesis because we won't really know until people have built like really big rock programs, which right now they're all very small. But uh, the reason I suspect this is this is going to hold, you know, often enough that this will be a good strategy is that uh, that's kind of what's enforced in Rust. Like in Rust, it's like, you know, you don't have like reference counting by default. You can opt into it as, as you can in C++. But by default, Rust enforces uniqueness at, at compile time and says, like, if I have this value and I want to mutate it, I have to, the type checker has to say like, this is unique. I can prove that nobody else has a, a mutable reference to it or an immutable, yeah, yeah. And, and what I've noticed is that, um, <clears throat> Uh, it, now, granted, it's it's a little bit different when you get like multi-threading involved and concurrency and stuff like that. Right. But by and large, if I'm writing like single-threaded code, I don't have to go out of my way to make it happen. It's just like it's just naturally the case that I'm passing these things around and I only have you know one unique version of them, and it's kind of fine. Um, and if you're once you get into like sharing across threads and things like that. Well, there's some precedent for it actually being a pretty good strategy to clone the whole thing. Like that's what Erlang does. That's yeah, exactly. You know? That's that's a feature, not a bug. Then you're like saying, well, you know, mutable sh shared mutable data between threads is like often a mistake. You did probably didn't want to do that in the first place, and so making it the the difficult case sounds like a a, a win. Really, that's cool. yeah. So we'll see how this goes. But actually, like this is one of the interesting. Um, Reasons that we'd be excited to have Rock on uh, Compiler Explorer. I almost called it Godbolt, by the way, but yeah, I'm, I know, like, yeah. I'm, I'm really talking to Matt Godbolt. Maybe I should call it Compiler Explorer. Yeah, that's what I'll, I'll only call it that because it's too weird. Oh, right. <laughs> no, I, the other thing. And, and I, yeah. you know, no, what if I made um, a piece of software and everyone's like, oh, yeah, Feldman? Is that, uh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Did, you, did you put that through Feldman yet? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See how it runs? Honestly, the jokes, the jokes write themselves when you're like at a C uh, conference. Everyone's like saying, you know, we're going to just put this on Godbolt. And I'm like, I am here. In the audience <laughs> we'll run it through it and see what happens you're like no anyway yeah, yeah. I, I saw a, a cppcon talk of yours where I, I think you mentioned at the beginning um you're like it's, it's weird to hear my name referred to as like as a piece of software like uh, in conversations as i'm walking through the conference it's it is very 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 surreal and it was never intentional right i just hosted it at that domain right, that was, that was the one i had it's like <laughs> I, now I, i've I, lost that domain name right there are there are like um, <laughs> almost everything.godbolt.org will go to compiler explorer and what we use is the, the prefix is a hint to which language we're going to pick so if we if we notice that it's like you know uh say rock.godbolt.org or um then we would pick rock from the list of languages if once we have it which we'll we'll talk about after this i think but yeah there are a few things that don't go to compiler you know, it's my little um like quiz pop quiz for people it's like which urls do not go to compiler. <laughs> right. There's like familyphotos.godbolt.org. Right, yeah. <laughs> now, now that, there's going to be a problem if someone makes a programming language called family photos. Right, and, right, you know. right, right. That's then we're in, we're in trouble then. No. And so actually people abuse this all the time for, uh, because each domain, each subdomain has its own local storage. And that means that you can like all of the things that are like configurable about it. So it doesn't even have to be a language. So I know that um, like, Daisy Holman, uh, she does a whole bunch of like C++ cute tricks. And so she has cute.godbolt.org. And that means that all of her tricks are kind of like, uh, you know, set up inside the local storage for her browser in that particular oh, no. setup. <laughs> and then if you go to godbolt.org, you've got a different, and again, you can pick different color schemes and things for each one of those. But yeah, so again, now, I, so I, again, I've lost the whole domain. I can't do anything except for the right, two or three right, things right. that are there, as you say. Um, I actually wondered if uh, if if people because like the first time I saw it was like godbolt.org. I was like I, I didn't it didn't occur to me that it might just be someone's last name. I was I was like why is the compiler explorer godbolt? Is it like it's like a thunderbolt from it's God? It's amazing how many people so have like tried to <laughs> either back rename or back work out why <laughs> right. it's that. And and famous famously, I mean uh, amongst my my friend group, my extended friend group, quite quite famously, um, there have been a couple of folks who've taken 
uh, offense to it, thinking it was a blasphemous kind oh, of thing. No. And then I've, then these people have emailed me, and it's my name. And they're like, oh, I'm really sorry. I'm like, I, I, mean, like, I, I appreciate that you came from a place of, you know, of, of, of genuine interest in why we were being so blasphemous. But no, no, we're not. It's just my dad's last name. But, <laughs> I, got it. I think there are a lot of things like that in programming where, you know, people don't know what the backstory is behind why something is the way they is. And so they kind of jump to a different conclusion and then conclude that it, like someone's made a terrible mistake or made a bad judgment call. And then you fill them in on the backstory. And they're like, oh, actually, that's that's OK. I, I yeah, see yeah, why yeah. That, that is what that. Is it? Was it Chest- Chesterton's fence? I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Oh, yeah, story, yeah, yeah. You know, again, you know, if you come across a fence in the middle of nowhere, don't assume you could just take it down. It's probably there for a reason. Right. And there's probably a good reason for almost everything. So you, you should try and assume the best of your fellow humans and, and hope that they've done something sensible and ask the questions before you go this is a stupid name or this is a stupid thing or whatever but yeah i, I actually um, think i mean when i learned sort of the full story of like i triple e floats um i like i mean like many people i'd been very frustrated with using them for a long time and then i i learned about the original design constraints where it's like well there were all these different cpus and they were all implementing floating point stuff in different ways which meant that your programs couldn't be portable across them you'd have to like you know write completely different floating point routines depending on which cpu you were targeting and they had to come up with a design that was like my design constraint is literally everything i have to do has to work inside a cpu and i have no idea how the cpu works it's just like i don't know how its error handling works i don't know all i know is it can just do instructions on registers and just using those as my only design constraints i need to try to do things like error handling and whatnot and at some point it's like oh like and why is not a number not equal to not a number it's like well if those are your design constraints and the goal is that once you have an error case you cannot do anything useful anymore all it's going to do is propagate the error case and that means every single operation has to return you know uh, an additional like not a number or else you're going to accidentally potentially get out of the error case absolutely which well there's a fun thing there because things like min and max depending on how you implement min or max you might actually end up accidentally reintroducing a real number in that situation if you think like you go if you know the typical way would be you know if x is less than y query x colon y and it's like well if one of them is nan that's always false which means it might pick the other one and now you've got a, a, a zero or something so like there's all these sort of nan aware mins and maxes and things that don't work that way if you have a if you have a cpu instruction as min or max then of course it will do the right thing but like the naive implementation in like your your favorite like language library might actually not do that so it's funny how this has these knock-on effects even though they tried so hard to make it such a um, a virus of, that was spread through your calculation from one end to the other. It's a, it's a fun one. That's a great point. And I, now that you say now, that, yeah, I, can see, I can see your color, I'm face like, changing color as you're all tapping. I'm, like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure we we'll have that bug in rock right now. <laughs> I wouldn't lose too much sleep over that right now. <laughs> no, no, I mean, we'll, we'll fix it. I, I just like, it hadn't even occurred to me. Um, I mean, but, yeah, it's a fun one. I think like, I mean, obviously Nan, NAN being not equal to NAN is something that has, you know, uh, caused a lot of bugs in the world. Um, but I, I think I can even sort of defend that decision as if the goal of NAN is to be like, well, this is if, if the only primitive you have is registers and CPU operations and the characteristics that you want of NAN are that it is once you're in that error state, it is useless. It cannot yeah. do anything useful. Then I think you kind of, there's a pretty good argument to be made that if you allow equals to work sort of normally, then now NAN can be accidentally useful potentially where you can say like, well, I did these two operations. Did they both end up with the same answer? Oh yes, they did. So things must be boring. I was like, no, you're in an error. Nothing nothing should work, (laughs) including equals. Absolutely. Everything should just stop working because you're in an error case. Um, And so I I don't think it's worked out that way in practice in the sense that, um, I think it's probably caused more bugs than not, but I, I can see the logic of like... Yeah, go on. All right. I was going to say, in my, in my day job, we use NAN all the time for exactly what its purpose is because when you've got a giant matrix of like 80,000 by 80,000 and one thing in it is NAN, you probably do want the whole thing to become NAN because that's a mistake and you don't want to have to like write checks all the way through it um, and you're throwing it off to a giant piece of hardware to do it for you and you, you're kind of trusting that that... You know, all the things you just suggested allow GPUs to work as well as they do because <laughs> right. they can make the assumptions. It's just a register. You don't have to deal with an exception at like the in the middle of a triangle rendering routine it's right. just like nope you're just gonna get junk from now onwards and that's okay that's by design 
Yeah, and, and I think like the logic behind specifically Nan is not equal to Nan returning false would be, let's say I did a whole bunch of calculations on one number and a whole bunch of calculations on another number. And then the last thing I do is say, are they equal? Um, I could see an argument that if Nan worked the other way, where Nan is equal to Nan, then you get all the way through the two calculations. And at the end, it says, are they equal? And it's like, yes, you have no idea an error. No, they're happened. like because everything arbitrarily broken is not equal to arbitrarily differently broken, but we're saying that they are if you don't have that that uh, that difference there. Yeah, if you don't, uh, if you allow Nan to equal to Nan, yeah. And so the argument, I think, you know, to to defend that behavior would be, well, what what you want is like you're you're annoyed that this gave an error, but like the whole point was to surface the bug. It's like there's a bug in your code somewhere you just didn't right. realize it, and so right, right. if I'd made them be equal, you never would have noticed it. So yes, there's a bug now, but there's a bug. Because there was a bug in your implementation somewhere. <laughs> there, yeah, you hit an error case. Surfacing an error that was otherwise... Like, I didn't have another way to surface it. I don't have exceptions. I just have CPU registers, and this is the only way I can think of right, right, right. <laughs> to communicate that to you. Well, so um, it's an interesting sort of... Uh, you, you mentioned the IEEE standard. One of the reasons, one of the more interesting things to me is that there are, like, almost... Was it 2 to the 23 or 2 to the 22 different NANs, right? What, there's a certain bit pattern in the exponent that means that this is not a number. And then the mantissa is essentially, I think all zeros means one is maybe plus or minus infinite. I forget the exact encoding, but there's yeah. an, an enormous range of values that are also NANs. And right, there's different compare, NANs. <laughs> but there are different yeah. NANs. And, and lots of like, you know, JIT systems for... Um, languages that have doubles as their primitive will then go well i'll tell you what we're going to do there's one real nan and then every other nan is actually a, a, either an integer that's in the same register that i would have put a double in or it's a pointer with another bit set or whatever or it's some kind of other flag that says no no, no this is actually a bigger object that lives somewhere else and i thought that was a really cute way of uh, abusing the fact that you know you you, you can uh, have discriminant bits effectively in your value and then it's just okay we just shuffle everything's eight bytes long whether it's an int a float a double or whether and i can tell which one's which just by looking at the number which which is cute yeah i i always um worry so i i, I certainly have done that with like pointers and stuff where you gotta you know the, the pointer always has a couple of bits that are not used right um but with NANs, it's a little bit weird because the uh, if I remember right, the the NAND bits are not right at the end. Like I I don't, I don't think they are. Um, maybe they are, and I'm wrong about that. But I I thought I looked into that at some point, and I was like, ah, oh, they're kind of in the middle. <laughs> the the point is very convenient because they're 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 right at the end, so you right. can do everything. Although else. you know, most 64 bit machines aren't really inverted commas 64 bits. So Intel machines only have I think 52 bits of actual address, or maybe it was at one stage it was 48, and I think it's gone up in the latest review, they've got yet another layer of page tables to like deal with even more RAM, which means that there's a number of bits even in the top of the bit, the pointer that are essentially meaningless, or you can mask them off and use them for other tricks. So yeah, if you know that you're on like a four or eight byte alignment, you've got a few bits at the bottom. And then if you know that you're on an architecture that doesn't quote really have that much RAM, then you've got a few bits at the top as well. So you can stuff an awful lot into those, uh, those gigantic pointers. Yeah, I always have mixed feelings about relying on that because in theory, you could be like, well, yes, for, for right now, a 64-bit pointer only, whatever, for, I think it used to be 48 and maybe now it's 52 bits are, are actually used there's, because of the hardware limitation. But then you have to wonder, okay, well, does that mean that in the future, if they raise the limit again, my code stops working? Or, or do I have to sort of target something more specific but am i going to have the ability to target something more specific like am i going to have people downloading download for i mean it's easy enough to say download for a 64-bit system done but it's a lot harder to say well download the version that's for a 64-bit system that do, do you know how many bits of yeah how many bits of of are actually used? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. imagine you know i i just think about like you know, somebody who's not a programmer, uh, like being asked to make that choice. Like, ah, which one so th these kind of tricks, I don't know how much they're used in say like the, the games industry. It strikes me as something that you could do there. They could be used in JITs, I think, because, uh, JITs will, you know, um, and which is, I think commonly where you can do this kind of packing thing, because obviously they, the JIT can say, what CPU am I working on right now? Oh, okay. This code is valid only for this computer. And I can use this particular trick because I know the operating system only has this many bits available or whatever that kind of stuff we actually going back to reference counting we actually have increasingly um 
made use of of knowledge of this. So uh, the first implementation of rocks reference counting was um, we had two uh, sort of exceptional cases. So one was um, <clears throat> what if you overflow the reference count? So we had a little check in there to say like when you're doing the addition, um, you know, what what if you go over the how, how many bits do you use? Just out of interest. Okay, now see you oh, immediately no, went there. I'm, I'm you sorry, immediately went there. Yeah, <laughs> so we we didn't think of this until a little bit later, but um, yeah. So so right now we're actually using the full like pointer size. So, so like you know, eight so you can have on. yeah, a, a two to the sixty four <laughs> reference counts, which I think if you have that it's many impossible. reference counts, yeah. you've got bigger problems than your code. Well, it's, it's actually not possible. Like you, right. the amount of memory in order because every single reference is another pointer. So you you couldn't possibly have that many references in memory. You would run out of memory before you, see, you're you worrying would about forward, forward looking. I'm going to have you know physical address extensions for my 96 bit machine, <laughs> yeah, right. and so I'm going to have paging for the other 16. Anyway, yeah, well, you're I mean, right. it, it was more just a sort of a reflex, right? It's like, oh, we're we're doing an increment. Why would you know? yeah. Let's let's check for overflow. Absolutely. Um, so we got rid of that. Uh, arguably, so I've actually subsequently learned that a lot of programming languages both don't check for overflow and use only 32 bits. Uh, which in practice is probably fine. Like it's Again, probably if you've got four billion up. references to the same objects, then right. maybe you've got a bit. <laughs> I mean, it's right. It's technically possible. Uh, it, on um, I actually, I, I think I should actually do the math on that. I didn't. Okay, let's let's. let's real quick, right, right, I'm going to think through this right now. This is the best time to do awesome. programming language design. Yeah, of course, it is. Like first thing in the morning in the podcast. <laughs> episode, right. right? <laughs> yeah. So okay. So let's say so it, one reference is eight bytes. So you have a pointer. So eight bytes times okay. Well, I, I guess it's already it's already possible because I mean you have like yeah so um, four gig times times eight is what it is. So that's thirty two gig of just yeah. pointers. I didn't allocate. Yeah, that seems seems within extremely improbable, but it is possible. Yeah. Um. So okay, but since we use eight bytes, you know it's it's fine. Um. We we could be saving a bunch of bytes if we didn't want to do that, so, uh, or or if we wanted to do the overflow check, I suppose. Yeah, the over, um, that's an interesting. So I know that some languages. So I know I well, I say no. I think Python three ten three eleven one of the newer Pythons or three twelve one of the ones where they've been working on the performance. One of the things they did is they decided to pack the reference count into the object itself in a much more uh, I say packed way, and they've only got like I think four bits, which means that you can only have up to. 15 or 16 reference count and then they use a saturating ad they go once we've hit 16 references that's it forever but of course python already has to solve the problem of cycles so they do have a generational garbage collector going on as well when they hit that so that's kind of their get out of jail card that's the, they're making the bet that most objects only have a couple of references and then go away or if, it, if an object has many, many, many references, then it's probably okay to let it live longer than it would normally live and then re reclaim it if needs be when the GC kicks in, which I think is a really interesting and pragmatic trade-off there. Obviously, you don't have this because you you you, you, you haven't got like a get-out-of-jail card uh, 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 garbage collector to, to call upon by design, which is cool, but yeah... I, um, the other thing I think languages might do is they they potentially could do something like, you know, you have a certain fixed number of bits, um, and then after that you have to, uh, like, look at a, a, a side channel map of of address of that object to reference count where, you know, that just gets more expensive for anyone adding to it. But it does mean in the very, very common case you... Um, you can use only the eight bits, say, and then once you get to 256, then it's like it stays at 255. And then whenever you want to get the reference count of the thing with 255, you go, oh, shucks, now I have to look up in some hash map somewhere else. What is the address of this object and how many references does this particular object have? Right. Well, a really nice thing about not having any extra logic in there and just doing an increment and that's it and a decrement is that if the value is shared across threads. You can do that in a single atomic instruction, just atomic increment, atomic decrement. You don't need to be like, okay, well, hang on. We need to atomically check and see if this overflowed. And like, yeah. the, you know, you're into definitely that. That's a, that's a very, very good point. Although, you know, if you can avoid the atomic part of even the increment, that's a nice, nice to have. Right? Yeah. If you know, we have some discussions about how to do that because obviously it's like much faster if you don't have to do the atomic increment um, at all. But then there's uh, th that's a, a whole rabbit hole of uh, of, of design space. Um, so I certainly there are some, some cases where you do have to do it un unless you want to like clone everything that gets potentially shared, which is also a rabbit hole of discussion. 
yeah. Well, I mean, all it is this is this is the wonder of this conversation is it's just been <laughs> one rabbit hole after another. I've enjoyed it, I'm right. it. But yeah, I think I've seen some cases where if you run in single threaded mode or until you spawn that second thread, something like, and forgive me if I'm, I'm mis- misremembering exactly how this works, but like the on x86, the lock prefix to a bunch of instructions is knocked out. So you kind of start up and they're like, okay, I have a list of where all the locks would go if I knew where they would, if I had to do them. And then as soon as I hit that second thread, the, before the thread's allowed to spawn, it has to either go back and change all of the the, the locks, uh, the knobs back into locks. Oh, wow. Knobs to locks. God, it sounds like a doctor's yeah. thing going on here. Um, or, you know, there are other things where you can have like these uh, sleds where you could change the address of the function by one byte. And if you jump into it at the beginning, then you get the lock prefix. And if you jump into it one byte on, you don't get the lock prefix. And so then if you have your like virtual table or equivalent, you know, your DLL table that says, oh, the lock in, the, you know, like, I know at this point this, this prevents inlining, but like you could have, so everyone jumps to address a thousand um, if it's a multi-threaded application and a thousand and one if it's not, and then we don't do the lock and he's like that's a real that's, that's really cool trick, right to actually <laughs> yeah. change the nature of the instruction you're running by like jumping into the middle of the instruction that's Which, wild yeah I, I i never thought about doing anything like that um it's the kind of tr- again jits will do things like this because they can get away with all they're already generating code so they can do anything they like at that point but yeah yeah there's another um another edge case that uh originally the original implementation actually we still have it's currently still implemented this way but um because we thought about it. I, I did. Brendan Hansconnect thought about it pretty recently. I, I did not come up with it, but um, which is uh, sometimes you have like a, a effectively a, like a constant or like a static where it's like this should, this should never be changed. Um, and this is actually going to be in the read only section of the binary. So like a string literal, for example. Um, <clears throat> so it's obviously uh, essential that, that those never um, actually get uh, like, you know, uh, you know, reference counted. Uh, and, uh, the trick there was, and actually, as I say this out loud, I think I just realized why we can't. Well, yeah, we we do actually have to keep it. That's a that's a shame. Um, but the the idea was uh, rather than having a special sentinel value that means like, hey, don't actually reference count this. Uh, we could just have the reference count start at two. But as I say this out loud, I actually just realized that we can't just do that because if it's in the read only section it's really important you don't even try to increment it right <laughs> um, yeah, or else it's, it's, it's gonna be a problem it's unfortunate like so back in back in the, the the old old days um tricks like that would happen where you could put stuff in rom where it was fine to not fine to even try to increment didn't do anything so you know you <laughs> you could put your well I, you know the read-only section was just rom it wasn't it wouldn't trap it just wouldn't do anything if you tried to write to it but obviously nowadays that's not a not open to us i wonder what tricks you can do though there must be a way i mean i guess so uh, a way that we could avoid having to have the reference count itself uh, be involved with that sort of stuff is we could do something along the lines of um, checking the address and seeing if the address is in that text section or not. Range, range, yeah, yeah, yeah. It still means that every time you're doing any reference count ever, you're doing that comparison. It, so it, like all the, all engineering, there are trade-offs here, right? So one of the other tricks that, that like JIT-style things might do is if you say it's so rare that, I mean, maybe this is not true, but like, let's assume it's extremely rare that you would want to add the reference count to uh, those read-only sections. If you could sustain the page fault you're going to get, catch it and go, that one's fine, and carry on with your life. Now, obviously, that's an expensive operation, but but it's not totally infeasible if it's relatively rare, and it saves you everywhere else having to put like three instructions around every reference count check. So there are are trade-offs. And again, you know, so... um, so emulators, for example, that do JIT compilation of um, of like say so one of my other hobbies is sixty five oh two based computer emulators that I like to write. But one of the tricks in JIT type things for that is like well a lot of code is self modifying, and obviously if the code modifies itself that you're emulating, then suddenly your JITed version of that code is completely out of date. So you need to know when it happens, and it happens a lot. You know, obviously nowadays we don't tend not to write self modifying code because we you know. We're, we're already, you know, mortal humans these days. We can't write these weird things that change their instructions on the fly, although we've just been talking about doing exactly that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, but the way one, one way to achieve something like that is to say, well, okay, the JIT, the, the once I've jitted an area of memory, I'm going to m- mark it as, as, uh, read only. And then anytime that the code itself tries to modify its own memory, it causes a page for which immediately knows that, um, tells me that 
I need to undo the jitting of that potentially while it's running and sort of go back to interpreting it for a little while. Um, I just have to make the, and then once that happens a few times, I just put it into a never jit this again world, or I use a different strategy or I say, I, the, the program can use a different strategy to, um, to, to handle that particular, um, case. There are some common self-modifying code things that you want to allow and whatever. Yeah. It's so, but it's, again, it's a trade-off like all these things, they're trade-offs. You know what I just thought of? Um, yeah, yeah. And this is, again, like <laughs> designing in the <laughs> middle of a podcast. Um, what we could do is instead of putting it in the read-only section of the binary, we could put it in the global section uh, because those actually are modifiable. As long as it's not exposed to the user, it doesn't really matter that they're modifiable. They'll only just be used for reference counting. Um, yeah, that's true. I mean, as long as you know, you can you can have some strong guarantees on the language side that no we, one's going to try do. and mutate it. So you'd right. be like, well, okay, I'd love for this to be constant, but... It ain't. I mean, another way <laughs> potentially is to separate the data from the reference count in that particular case, if that's feasible, um, and then have... Yeah, that yeah. was my, my first thought was, so we, we do have, um, like, one of the fanciness of our data structures is both our, the equivalent of like a C++ vector and a C++ string. So we do the small string optimization, but also we have what we call seamless slices, which is kind of similar to small string, except that it's basically like we have a little bit inside of there that says, hey, um, I actually reference somebody else's memory for like substrings, for example, or yeah. Um, and so I believe if I remember right, the way the design that we ended up on that makes it possible that you could say, well, my static string is actually there's a an allocation of the the reference count is like over here in in like the you know, global section and the and actual references data, the read only section. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's somewhere else. Um, I, I think that they can be disconnected that much, but I I'm not a hundred percent sure. I'd have to think about that one some more. But I, I do think just putting everything in globals would probably work. And I don't I think the only arguable downside there is that then maybe the platform could mess around with them, which I don't know, the platform can mess around with so many things that you know. <laughs> Yeah, right. If you're trying to protect yourself from Yeah, from, I mean kinda kinda good luck on that one. <laughs> it's still it's still nice to like at least consider it. And and so I, something else that just occurs to me is potential for if you could have maybe pack the reference counts for like an area of like you know imagine you've got your arena allocator and you're like okay well i know where the nth object is and if there is a if I, if I have a shadow allocation that's like 4k below that or in some like cl very clear offset from it so whenever you allocate a meg of ram you actually also allocate a uh, meg divided by whatever um some some kind of clever way of getting from an object to a smaller subset of it and that's where all the counts are going to go and then they live in a separate page they're always at least four thousand bytes away from each other and then you could page protect one and not the other in that particular instance. And then it's like, okay, well, the, um, you know, in order to add a reference count to an object X, I do uh, X divided by 64 or whatever to get my offset into the table. And then I subtract 4K or whatever, some magical thing from it. And then I get the answer of where to look. Uh, and uh, and then that's that allows me to keep them divorced from each other, which might be a sensible thing to do for cache coherency or you know, not cache coherence, cache alignment stuff as well. You know, like other, you know, all the all the reference counts are right next to each other. So yeah, that's, that's better. I don't know. That's fascinating. So that that is actually a question I've been asking is that um, yeah, I mean, obviously like reference counting has significant overhead, and one of the parts of the overhead is that. Uh, is, is cache coherency like you have so the way that we do it today is we have like um uh, your string let's say your string is really big so it's on the heap uh small string optimization doesn't kick in you have all the bytes on the heap and then at the very beginning of those bytes like right before the first byte of the string itself that's where the reference count lives perfectly sensible place to put it but yeah as the unfortunate I mean, and often actually if you're going to look at a string you're going to look at the beginning of the string anyway so the fact that you've just pulled up 64 bytes or whatever of it maybe is actually an optimization or at least well, but the, the problem maybe. is what happens if you've got a string of function calls and what's happening is just that you're passing a bunch of stuff around but you're not actually looking at it until the very last one of those function calls and and perhaps often you're not looking at it at all um so in those cases it would be advantageous to have all the reference counts tightly packed somewhere else so that you know because mainly what you're doing when you're passing them all around is incrementing and decrementing reference counts and not looking at the individual things yeah, so sure those could all be in cache still 
I think it probably would only be a benefit if you had like a number of strings that you were looking at at the same time and then you were doing that with. So you were ad refing like eight of them that happened to be in the same cache block. But other than that, you're just pulling in the first 64 bytes always and then you're still sharing that between all the, 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 the threads. I wonder if there's another, um, if we're trying to think, I know we're solutioning here <laughs> for something <laughs> hypothetical, which is fun. Um, one thing that in, say, the C++ uh, equivalent of this is if you have like a shared pointer, not that we try not to use it, but if you have a unique pointer or things like that, then there's a bit where, uh, sorry, a bit, you can pass a reference to the shared thing instead of the shared thing itself. And passing the shared thing itself, obviously add refs as you create a copy of the object, which has another reference to it. But in C++, we can also say, like, I just wanted to pass the reference to the reference counted thing, which immediately subverts, unfortunately, the actual reference counting itself. Right? <laughs> right. But if you're, for example, lending, to use Rust's terminology, a reference to something which just happens to be in a, uh, a, a counted thing, and you're like, well, okay, at this point, I am the only user, and you're the only user, or at least I'm still holding on to a reference to it while I give it to you. So I don't have to track the other guys, the other functions, add and remove at all. I'm just going to hand you the object and say, you don't need to do this because I'm guaranteeing that I'm keeping it alive for the pro until you return back to me. So if you could do like the sort of escape analysis that says I'm passing something into this function and now I know that this reference counted thing that I'm given never leaves this function and you assume that the caller is like still threaded. You don't kind of discard your caller and uh, like disappear off. I know set jump, long jump can start playing tricks with this, but then you could have a, a version of the function where you say, well, this one doesn't add ref to the, to, to, uh, you can, you know, like this is the kind of trick that compilers pull. They'll clone the function and say like, in the case where I know that this is being passed, um, directly, I can make two copies of the, of the, the calling function. And one of them is called, you know, clone one paren don't add ref. And the other one's just a regular one. And then you can call the right one based on the circumstance that you're in. It's like, well, this doesn't need to add ref. And so in your chain of function calls, you could actually get away with not calling add ref or subtract ref at all, because you can prove that the entire chain is just passing on to the next person in line, the next function in line. Yeah, so we, we've talked about doing stuff like that, like doing sort of like borrow inference that's sort of opportunistic in the same way that our mutation is opportunistic. Because like in Rust, it's it's more of a, you explicitly state it in the type annotation. There's a series of papers that uh, have to do with this whole style of, they call it functional but in place or FBIP, which I think is... Oh, that's cool. I, I, like, I like to say opportunistic mutation just because it's like... You know, that's I don't know. also said both of those are very cool sounding <laughs> things. I want both um, of those in my language. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but basically, uh, one of the things that they talk about, and I think this is in Coca now, um, is having borrow annotations similar to Rust for this purpose. But what we're interested in is, is there a way that we can do it without having to require the user to annotate it? And so we can just infer it when possible. And if not possible, then, you know, it just falls back on normal reference counting. Because, yeah, eliminating statically eliminating reference counts is the general theme of this. And what's nice about that is that um, a difference between reference counting and like tracing garbage collectors. I mean, one is you don't get GC pauses, which is, of course, nice. Um, two is that. And another thing that's nice in Rock's case is that if you have a strong concept of like a platform or like a host language that's a different language, as an aside, another nice thing that this uh, means for Rock is that Rock can be pretty good at being embedded in other languages, like a Lua kind of a, a thing. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we don't have a runtime. It's just like, here, here's your thing. Here's the reference count. Yeah. Have at it. Sense, have yeah. fun. <laughs> um, and we actually have a thing called uh, Rock Glue, which is good, but not as, it's not sort of done yet, but it basically is like, it generates glue code in a target language. So you can say like, generate me some glue code for my rock program in Rust. And then uh, anyone can write like one of these glue translation layers. So we have one written for Rust. I'm working on one for actually Node.js uh, for work because um, we want to introduce uh, rock to our, our Node.js backend and have it sort of slowly take over. <laughs> um, nice, yeah. But incrementally uh, improve the system rather than kind of like rewrite it from scratch. Exactly, which is a lot more exactly. scary, right? Um, and the cool part about glue is that uh, it just receives from the rock compiler. It's like here's all the type and layout information of all of your rock types that are going to be in this thing. So unlike a Lua, um, you can actually generate like typed bindings between the two languages, which which makes it even easier to embed. So what's cool about all that is that it means when we're sort of generating this glue code and like making this sort of like a nice embedded experience, we can, we can create a sort of a scenario where if I am the author of like a game engine or uh, like anything that wants to embed something, I can get this like 
I'm going to call out to this automatic memory managed language. It's type checked and the reference counting is going to sort of like take care of itself automatically on the language side. But then when I get these values back, I can very easily continue to manage that memory because they're just reference counts. Yeah, yeah. There's not some exogenous random GC that I somehow have to be aware of or cooperate with in some way. I mean, you know, yeah. But the downside is that there's significant overhead. So what we, you know, to sort of bring it back to an advantage of reference counting over tracing GC is that there is an opportunity to make the compiler smarter and eliminate statically more and more reference counts by using tricks like the like borrow inference and stuff like that. Whereas with tracing GC, there's not, as far as I know, really anything you can do to make your compiler smarter to just be like, oh yeah, now there's less tracing that needs to happen. I don't, I mean, you can certainly improve your tracing GC algorithm, which is, uh, you know. Right, right. And, you know, there's generational type tricks here. And in fact, you know, we mentioned about page protecting. That's another like trick, you know, the the, the tracing GCs will do. They'll throw very long lived objects in the uh, right away and then they'll page protect it or page protect the parts that have references in them so they can see, oh, you just changed the reference from this. I don't have to trace you again. Um, But I've noticed for very low overhead when, uh, when you mutated one of your long-lived objects and now it's got a pointer to something new and now i have to retrace it at some point in the future so there's more all the it all comes back around to these these uh yeah these i I certainly think there's an opportunity to um if i imagine like you know what's the we, we we've succeeded in making the nicest possible automatic reference counting thing in theory you could have a significant subset of rock programs that just never do any runtime reference counting at all because it all works out that the program you wrote is all borrows and so forth. Right. Uh, and then and at then, that point, you don't even have to, you know, if you can prove that a particular instance of an object doesn't ever have a, a reference count other than one or zero, and you know when it goes to zero because you can trace it all the way through, you don't even have to have a reference count on the front of that object. There's some really cool tricks, yeah. And and we already do a good bit of that um, where where we do static detection of uh of whether the reference count would be one at runtime. Like we know that this can be updated in, in place. And so then we don't even check the reference count. And so that's like uh, um, Morphic and Perseus are the two papers that like kind of have to do with those types of things. And another one called Counting Immutable Beans, which is a fun name. Paper, <laughs> paper <laughs> um, authors, man. <laughs> got some yeah. great, great names. Um, but basically, yeah, there, there's, a, there's a good bit of that. We, we don't currently ever go as far as to say, um, we won't even allocate the reference count. Uh, but part of that is because we're concerned about, well, if we hand this off to the platform, the platform expects a reference count to be there. Yeah, it's not. But we could, for example, in theory, say, well, we know this value also never escapes to the platform. So let's just not allocate the reference count. It's, it's not going to be a problem. Yeah. 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 And that would make for for some some cool size-based optimizations, which then again helps your cache performance and all that exactly. kind of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> See? Awesome. Yeah. Wow, this is great. We covered a lot of ground. An awful uh, lot of ground, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm just looking back at those and like thoughts and thinking, wow, yeah, we start, we, we've talked about a bit of everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, Matt, th- thanks so much for taking the time to do this. This is a lot of fun, and, uh, and I really enjoyed it. Likewise, this has been an awful lot. Of, I'm going to look up Rock, and then, yeah, I think you and I will well, probably have some email conversations about getting it onto Compiler Explorer. I oh, love it. That would be great. All right. All right. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>